Hey everybody, Larry Powell here, Studio HFL, your host for uh, tonight's Live With interview with Chris Gecker, and glad you're joining me tonight. And uh, just a quick word while some other people are joining. Uh, of course, this interview, uh, the audio and video will be available on the YouTube channel following the interview tonight. Um, other interviews that are like this, the live interviews, they're all available on the YouTube channel. And of course, uh, the regular podcast uh, will come out on Tuesdays. In fact, James Thompson's interview came out this morning. Uh, Bria Schoenberg, 99, episode 99, comes out next week. And then episode 100, Wayne Bergeron, comes out at the end of February. So those are some other interviews to look forward to. And uh, so it looks like we've got some people joining in. This is a great time uh, to welcome Chris Gecker. Chris, it's a pleasure to, to see you tonight. How are you? Fine, Larry. Thank you. Thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah. Um, a couple of tech issues, you know, we didn't get a chance to, to actually meet <laughs> formally before this, but um, of course, I know who you are. There's, I mean, you're kind of a big, a big deal, you know, in the trumpet world, wouldn't you say? Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> well, I think a lot of people would argue uh, that you definitely are. You know, uh, I've got a couple of your books, like many people, but the first time I ever heard you play live, and you might not appreciate me bringing this up, but it was the San Antonio ITG. And I think you were, you were suffering with a flu or something. Do you recall that? Yes. Uh, I, I had uh, that weekend, I remember I was watching the NBA finals on Saturday night and felt very strange late at night and went to bed and was shivering. I, I, I just caught a chill. And the next day, you know, just tried to get through the day. And I remember, in fact, working outside some. And I just had a really bad fever. Mm. Well, I was supposed to fly to San Antonio on Wednesday. And uh, just sort of toughed it out. And uh, But when I arrived in San Antonio, my fever was over 103. And uh, it was, I was, uh, was I was concerned. So I checked in the hotel. And I was advised to go straight to the hospital. I went to the emergency room. And they, uh, I, I was in the emergency room about five to six hours. They had me hooked up uh, to all kinds of uh, fluids and such. I, I was given, you know, they, they tried very hard to, to figure out what I had. They couldn't come up with anything. It was just some sort of strange bug. This was a, several years ago. And then, you know, this modern time, what a sort of a scary thought. But at that time, I just, you know, in any case, uh, they sort of knocked it out of me, though I was very, very weak. And uh, uh, then the next day I played uh, Jim Stevenson's uh, concerto uh, Road Home, which I was to premiere mm -hmm. with the Air Force band. And the next day uh, tr tried the rehearsal and I felt fine. And the next day was a concert. And I mean, it's fine as a relative. I mean, I was I could play. I had to place on, sitting on a stool. Mm -hmm. It's a uh, some piece with some high notes and such, but uh, I, I was thankful that it, uh, uh, it. I think it went very well. I've played it since then, and, and I did a class then too. It was a great experience. I saw a lot of old friends there, but yeah, I was very, uh, very uh, hit hard by this. In fact, I remember walking home from the uh, emergency room back to the hotel, which was about a ten minute walk, and it took me about forty minutes. I mean, I had to really stop every. 20 yards and just sort of, you know, gather myself. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, that was that. Well, I, I remember you sounded fantastic. And I think a, like a lot of us were like, how in the world are you even managing? Because, you know, you, 
I'll, I'll be honest, you didn't look like you felt <laughs> great, you know, kind of pale, uh, but holy cow, you, you, you brought it, you know, yeah. if you're just running off adrenaline or, you know, yeah. I think we all know how that feels, but. I still, I still had the IVs, you know, the, my arm was bandaged up because I basically had needles in me for five hours. And, uh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, and, you know, thinking about that band that accompanied you, they sounded wow. fantastic too. What, a, what an organization it is. Uh, I, the whole concert, they were just phenomenal. And, uh, uh, we had a, a, a University of Maryland clarinetist in the band. I had, in fact, I had coached an ensemble she was in just the year before in L'Histoire. In fact, she had a young baby at the time. I, you know, when you're coaching chamber music, uh, your your job is to do whatever is most useful. And I actually babysat while they were rehearsing. But yeah, she was in the band, and uh, it's that phenomenal. We had the trumpet section. My gosh, yeah, it was a great, great band. You know, it's it's funny. Everybody talks about the, the premier bands, the DC bands, but I think every military band that I've heard has just been top shelf. Oh yeah, it's it's such a culture, and the 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 standards they hold themselves to, the the sense of of uh, duty and pride they take in in the ceremonial duties. Um, no one who as ever, no one who uh, how do I put this? Unless you're a trumpet player who's had to play taps outside on a on a in a certain environment and and the meaning of doing that, uh, no one will ever understand what that means, and uh, it's quite something. So when we see these great trumpeters uh, fulfill these duties and then all the other things they do, it's just I was raised in that environment. I, mean, I was born in Washington D.C. and uh, raised listening to military bands, and uh, it, it's. It is a, its own culture, and uh, it's it's an amazing uh, sort of environment, and uh, the the population of artists that not just trumpet players, I mean other instruments too, but it's just, it's quite something. Yeah. Well, and it's it's funny to even look at like the Marine Band as kind of the stepping stone for the all these great artists that come out. You know, Tom Hooten, uh, Nancy Taylor, all these other just terrific. Yeah, yes. well, and of course I'm mentioning trumpet players because that's that's what I know. But uh, yeah. yeah, so you mentioned uh, chamber music, which I think you might know a little bit something about. Um, <laughs> and of course, you know, I'm I'm thinking about uh, uh, ABQ. Um, could we talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Uh, so was it 17 years? Is that right? That you were 18. It was 18. 18 years I was there. Yeah. I didn't mean to shortchange you on that. I hope that doesn't affect your retirement <laughs> with them. Um, yeah. How did you How did you first get into that group? Well, it's interesting. I was uh, I had actually right at the end of my senior year of college at Eastman, I uh, won a, a national audition for the Kansas City Philharmonic. This was 1976. That was a full time orchestra. Then it was a big audition, and. Um, uh, so I, I went there for, and I was there for three years, and I it was a phenomenal job to have for experience. But I I also came to the realization during my three three years there that I did not want to be in an orchestra full time. And I was very grateful for the job, believe me. But um, and I love playing an orchestra. I mean, I do it, you know, a lot. Mm -hmm. but I, there was just something about the dynamic of doing it all the time that that I wasn't ready for it then. I, I had a great time. I had nothing but friends there. I'm so close to people that I was in the orchestra with. 
but it's just not what I wanted to do. So I, I left after three years. Now, two years after I left, they, they uh, folded in, in 1981. I left in 79, they folded in 81. Thankfully, there is now the Kansas City Symphony, which is an excellent orchestra. It's an entirely different organization and doing very well. It's a great city, you know, it's a great place. Anyway, so I was back in the DC area, I was doing several things. I was uh, playing a lot of shows. I've, I've always been a big theater player. The University of Maryland at the time, I had been offered to, they had a faculty brass quintet, and I was not on the faculty, but I was in the faculty brass quintet with the trumpet professor Emerson Head, who had been my teacher in high school. And we were quite active. And I was playing, all, DC, DC was a busy, busy place to play. And I was also working during the day. I mean, I had a, a day job with a printing company that was owned by my sisters. I drove a delivery truck and worked on Harris Offset Press and, and did things. It was just a very busy time. And I was happy. I mean, I was young, I was in my mid-20s, and it was, it was just a very active time. Anyway, so one day I'm at the printing company, I'm working the press, you know, I've got a job on, I've got a, like a, you know, uh, apron to work with ink. And, and, and this is in the days before answering machines or cell phones, certainly. And back in those days, when you tried to reach somebody, you just call around. You know? So anyway, uh, I got a phone call and it was Ray Mace. And, and he said, uh, this is Ray Mace from American Brass Quintet. We have a trumpet opening, and and we'd like to ask you if you'd like to audition. And they had already been holding a lot of auditions. Now, I had been active in various situations, and I had done a recording with someone who had been in a Canadian brass. And, you know, he had told Ray, you know, there might be someone else you might want to listen to. And so Ray, well, how do you reach me? You know, he, he I don't have a, a common last name. So he, you know, looking in the Washington DC area, looking in the phone book, he found my mother's phone number, called her up and she said, well, you might be able to catch him here or there. And she gave him like two or three numbers that she might, he might be able to catch me. So Ray's calling around and got a hold of me and, and it was quick. The shop was noisy. You know, I, I'll never forget that. He said, like, uh, I, is this Chris Gacker? I said, yeah. He says, the trumpet player? I said, uh, yeah. He says, where am I calling? And I said, well, it's kind of hard. To <laughs> Anyway, uh, they uh, they invited me to come up, and um, they had been, like I said, been holding auditions, and uh, I uh, they gave me a list of pieces to be ready to do, and and it was it was a bit a long audition. Anyway, it, it, and I was uh, maybe it was like ten days later. I remember catching the shuttle to New York. I was working like all the time, so this was like a day off to me. I remember you know getting up at five and going to the airport and. And, uh, you know, I flew in and landed at LaGuardia and I took a bus in to uh, Grand Central and I just walked to the Ansonia Hotel. So the bus, Grand Central is 34th on the east side and I walked to, you know, 74th and Broadway. Just such a beautiful day. I just, you know, to me it was like, hey, it's a day in New York and wow, this is cool. And, and New York is the greatest place in the world to take a walk in. You know, it's just, uh, uh, I mean, it is a great place. And so uh, it was like a, two-hour audition. You know, I played some Ernest Williams duets with Ray in front of the other people in quintet. We played Renaissance. We played Ewald. We played Ingolf Dahl. We played Elliot Carter. Um, at the very end, they said, uh, uh, can you play some A2? You know, I, I played a Busquet A2. I remember playing Busquet number eight. And, and they said, we'd like to offer you the job. And, and later, you know, Ray, the guy said, you know, uh, actually, after you 
and Ray played a couple of duets. We had already decided, you know, but then it turned into just playing with them for like two hours. So very exciting. And uh, I came to New York and I, I didn't start working in all around New York. I did the quintet stuff, but, you know, I, I didn't, I still had a lot of obligations in, in New York, in Washington. So I would go back and forth a bit. But I remember I started in the studio scene pretty quickly. And there was a, a TV show, Nurse, with uh, Michael Larned, who was the female star of the Waltons. I remember she was a headline. You know. So I, I'm in a studio. This is about two months later. And uh, I'm sitting in between Jerome Ashby on horn from the New York Philharmonic. And on the other side of me is Dave Bargeron from, on trombone from the Blood, Sweat, and Tears. And, uh, and uh, you know, they, the, it went well, and they hired me for the whole year. And I was just like thinking to myself, you know, two months ago, I was driving a delivery truck. <laughs> I mean, I, I was a confident trumpet player, and I yeah. sure, certainly practiced all the time, but uh, very grateful for that opportunity. And uh, I always say to people, if, if, you know, I hadn't, I had a lot going on here. Uh, there was stuff growing in this area. I would have been just fine, but, but it was a, a great um, chance and opportunity and led to a lot. And uh, American Brass Quintet is a, an amazing ensemble with an amazing history, like, like a very unique kind of history, a really a composer driven group that plays, doesn't play transcriptions, plays original music. Um, within a year I was, you know, on the great wall of China with them and, and uh, you know, uh, lots of recordings and, uh, uh, it's really a critically acclaimed group. In other words, it's a brass quintet where we're, because we're always playing, you know, Charles Warren, and, or, I mean, you know, Ned Roram, Jacob Druckmann, or historically informed uh, versions of early music. So the critics pay a lot of attention to the group and uh, very grateful for that time. And Ray Mace, you know, one of the great trumpet players who's ever lived just to Sit next to him, and, and the way the quintet works is it's always worked. It's the two trumpet players 50-50. You know, you play um, first and second, back and forth, back and forth. It's considered a team effort. But uh, what a, a colleague to have! All, all, everyone. But sure. But uh, you know, Ray is just really one of a kind. So, yeah. how active was that group when you joined? Well, it's not full time. In other words, when you join the American Brass Band, you you have other things to do. But that almost I preferred that. You know, we would have a one, uh, two tours a year: one in the fall, one in the spring. We had teaching. Uh, when I joined the group, uh, it came with a teaching job, uh, being at, uh, at Brooklyn College at that time. Eventually, with the group, I was and as a private teacher was teaching at Juilliard. In my years in New York, I also uh, had faculty positions at the Manhattan School of Music and Columbia University, but with the quintet where I both coached chamber music and taught private, it was Juilliard. So you had that, and then summer Aspen Music Festival. So they had those teaching jobs. So we had, you had a tour in the spring, a tour in the fall. You had a, a recital series at Carnegie Recital Hall. And then various uh, times you, uh, you know, you do a couple days quickly here or there. I mean, some of them are nuts. I mean, we once flew to Italy, played a concert, and we're back within 24 hours to the United States. And uh, so sometimes it was kind of crazy like that. But um, yeah, and and a, f a fair amount of recording. Uh, again, composer-driven. Uh, you know, we had a lot of offers to go sort of more, a little bit more commercial. And um, the group just had a very, very uh, strong profile. Now, 
no, nothing again. I'm as commercial a trumpet player as you're going to ever meet. I mean, you won't find anyone who's played more rodeos than me and things like that. And 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 I played a lot of rock and, and I've been a very involved with jazz over the years. But in the quintet, I really enjoyed that exclusive focus on the art of the composer, which I, it, to me is a big, big, important and thing in my musical life and it's been ever since because I've been involved with composers you know constantly not just with quintet but in every sort of uh, situation of sonatas for trumpet piano or chamber pieces with violin trumpet piano you know things like that well I think that's the identity of of the group right I mean Canadian brass had their identity they they had a very specific thing a look as well as a sound uh, the same with Empire, right? There was a definite look as well as a sound and a, and a vibe with with all those, you know. Oh, it's phenomenal. I mean, Canadian. I I got to record them in Toronto once, and they're what they did was just so honest and and so much integrity. It it really was their persona as artists, and you couldn't do it otherwise. And and done beautifully. Empire, I mean, Empire was like the fab five i mean the, the the amount of the sheer weight and power and mastery they brought to stuff just mind-boggling so i feel like the three groups never existed in the same uh, uh world and and for that reason it it is something to celebrate that, that absolutely the, the, the individual uh, and it was yeah, I mean, I'm sure some people, you know, like to get into sort of competitive stuff, but it, just the quality was just so high and and individual, and that, and not just those three. I mean, you know, the Meridian group, which was really born in our in our brass chamber class at, at Juilliard, was a group like none other, and there and there are many, and there's a number of other groups as well. Right. Well, and you mentioned that group, and I'm thinking Kevin Cobb uh, was between both those, wasn't he? In Meridian and uh, ABQ. Um, well, Kevin took my place when I left ABQ in 98 and, right. and a marvelous player. I mean, what an right. artist. Is. I, I know Kevin, I just spoke to him the other day, but I'm not sure of the timeline. I'm sure. I'm yeah. sure <laughs> it's, been, I, it's been a few years. Meridian for me was, uh, you know, at school was, you know, John Kelly and, and Rich, I, I mean, John Nelson and Rich Kelly, I mean, and, uh, uh, that group and, you know, them playing the Etler and then the Zappa stuff. I mean, it was just it was off the chain. I mean, <laughs> the way they played. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it, well, and I, I agree with you that the identity between those three groups, the difference, we should celebrate that because the brass world needed that. We needed uh, all these different uh, examples to yeah. right? because still, you know, you look at the repertoire we have, we're still kind of in the infancy of brass quintet repertoire. You know, there's still so many transcriptions, so many arrangements. Yeah, and very, very little original for good reason i mean i mean brass can really you know just sound so amazing in so many contexts i really i think that i want to myself want to really devote myself to what composers do i mean to me it's you know i used to joke sometimes you know the american brass Quintet. we were responsible for hundreds of premieres and I, the number I can't remember anymore, but let's just pick a number. Let's say it's 250 premieres. I used to like joke that, well, 200 of those were both first and last performances. <laughs> but, but that's no reason to stop. I mean, to me, there's nothing, I still, I still get very excited if I'm at a concert of new music and you know, what's, what's the first note I'm going to hear? What's the second note? I mean, to me, it's still like, uh, 
a, a cause for wonder. And I, I really will never get over that. I, I mean, I, you know, to me, I wish I was a composer. I'm not, I don't have that in me, but I, I sort of live vicariously through a composer. So the, like the solo CDs I've done have, have all been composer driven projects where the, the point is not me, the trumpet player, but these pieces, you know, uh, uh, that's what really excites me and inspires me. Mm -hmm. um, looking over here to see if there are any comments yet. Not, not yet. Um, so, you know, I'm thinking uh, ABQ, uh, you've got, uh, you can't sub out in these groups, right? right? I mean, you've got to commit to that. And, but that's another reason that these groups are so successful. You look at that original group with Canadian Brass, the original, well, Empire, you know, they, they did shuffle around a little bit early on, but, you know, that really does say something to the, the effectiveness of, of a group when you can get that, you know, who exactly, who you're sitting down next to, you know, there's a trust in how people play, right? There's a, and it's not a predictability, not, not in a bad way. Right. Right. In some ways that there's a certain point where repetition becomes the foundation for more creativity when, when it's like, like uh, there's sort of a subconscious intuition you get when you've gone down a road many times that allows for a kind of spontaneity. It's a very hard thing to describe, but, uh, but it's there. And yes, it, it was. And, it, and as a, as a working musician, you know, sometimes all of us had stories of what we've given up to stay in a group, you know, a, a TV show or a, a Broadway show or something like that, that might've been very lucrative, but because it conflicted with something in the quintet and that, and the quintet stuff was untouchable. Now I was not really a freelancer in, in New York city. I had three major jobs. I, the quintet, the Orchestra of St. Luke's, which I was principal trumpet, which included the St. Luke's Chamber Ensemble, and that group did tons of recordings. And then Orpheus, where Ray Mace and I functioned as co-principals. And that group, particularly in the mid to late 80s and early 90s, recorded a tremendous amount. So, um, the, and those three groups sort of put their schedules, uh, I'm not sure, don't know if there was conscious effort, but the schedule sort of fit as a puzzle. So between the three, I was always booked. It's like, I, I was never like waiting for the phone to ring, you know, gee, what am I going to do? There was always stuff to do. Now, I, on top of that, I did other things quite frequently. I had a lot of studio work. Now, the studio scene in New York really sort of faded out toward the late 80s. But there was a time when it was really hopping, you know, TV shows, jingles, commercials, movie soundtracks. So I did a lot of that. I played a lot with the New York Philharmonic. I mean, I, I played quite a bit with them. And uh, uh, and then uh, Chamber Society of Lincoln Center, which I played quite a bit with. So those things, uh, you know, yeah. When, when you walk into the New York Phil, and you've probably done offstage principal for a second, third. I mean, have you done every position when you go into to that? Or do they call you specifically for principal? Uh, different stuff. I, I, you know, I did so. I did take Phil's place at times uh, on subscription series too for mm -hmm. people played second to him a number of times. And then uh, I remember a live at Lincoln center broadcast where, you know, we did the four trumpets playing Tchaikovsky fifth. So, you know, he and I was his assistant. I was his, uh, I was, you know, Robin to his Batman on the first trumpet, so to speak. And, uh, uh, and then, you know, I can remember, you're playing fifth trumpet on Mahler six and things, various things like that. 
So yeah, Mahler second, the recording with Leonard Bernstein for Deutsche Grammophon, uh, Johnny Ware and I playing off stage and uh, yeah, so. What, what was it like sitting between Phil and uh, Joe Alessi? Well, no one sits, but they sit next to each other. <laughs> oh, well, I thought maybe as an assistant, you're sitting, yeah. Uh, yeah, Joe is an old friend. I mean, last, not this past summer, the summer before last, uh, we did a quintet together in uh, um, Canada and uh, with uh, Stefan Dorr, the principal horn of Berlin. That was quite a quintet to be in. Sergio Carlino on tuba, fantastic virtuoso uh, tuba player. And uh, um, it, yeah, Joe is uh, amazing, you know. Yeah, it's 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 interesting the Philharmonic. I mean, it's like it's like no one is really seems to be working very hard, but there's this massive sound that's that you're in. So it, it's a, like a combination of sort of it doesn't it feels kind of like no one's working. Well, it, I, it, I'm not going to use the word effortless because people are serious and and working, but it. It just flows, you know, and there's just, I think it's, we have 104 people, each person in the entire orchestra is a world-class virtuoso. So 104 people playing piano at, with that quality of sound, it's, and it's piano, I mean, it's soft, but it's, there's just such a, a, a body to it that is, that once you're sitting there, it's just like, you know, it's hard to kind of put into words. Yeah. Did you ever sub into the Met? Uh, no, no. Mark Gould, one of my... That's, I mean, you know, Mark, I, one of the most influential trumpet players to me and uh, learned a lot from him. I think at his peak, he was the most colorful orchestral player I've ever heard in my life. And I did jazz recordings with him. He and I recorded with Billy Joel. I mean, did a lot with Mark over the years. And I, I consider him like a teacher. I mean, just working with him, uh, the things he would say offhand, uh, still stuff stays with me to this day. Very influential on me. But uh, no, I never, I mean, the the it just wasn't appropriate i mean they already they a lot of people were already there established principal the met and it's it's just a different dynamic i was never looking for it either i mean i certainly went to the met to listen I, i'll never forget going to hear him play like a mozart opera and i had never heard such a, a sound on a rotary trumpet you know and it, and if you know mozart there's nothing that stands out so much but with the sound and the and the presence he had and i, I remember i called him i went back and t talked to him because i was playing a lot of rotary too and he showed me some of his setup stuff and yeah just yeah <laughs> um you know i'm i'm excited i get to talk to him i think uh we set a date in march um uh, i can't remember maybe it's april but um yeah i'm gonna have him on mark is you know I mean, he's sort of well known for a certain kind of brusqueness, I guess you'd say. But he's really the most ge generous people I've ever met in terms of he'll give of himself as a teacher. It's just sometimes, you know, it, it, it'll have a kind of a bite to it. I, I, I sometimes think, uh, you know, because he's really a, a guru, you know. It's it's sort of like if, if like Yoda was a New York crab dollar or something like this. It's like, yeah. He's, yeah, it's like these great pearls of wisdom, but they're sort of snapped at you. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, you know, it might be a risk, uh, you know, going live, but uh, oh, I'm, no. I'm willing. I'm willing to take that risk. So yeah. um, I've got a comment here in the chat, and this is from uh, Akira Miratani. Akira is a friend of mine, colleague. Akira plays with the Fort Wayne Philharmonic. Really fine trumpet player, super nice guy. But he says, "Hey, Larry, Chris, this is Akira." 
one of Chris past students from Stony Book. Do you remember Akira? Oh, sure, I do. Yeah, very much. Yeah, he still practices uh, your etudes and drills, and they always get get him into great shape. Uh, I would agree with that. Uh, let's see, what else does he get? I really don't know what Chris did, but he corrected my musical faults. So grateful because I can feel the music that way. Yeah. I didn't have a sense of that at the time, Akira. It was very, I was only at Stonebrook one year and uh, really enjoyed the brief time we had working together very much. Well, well you'll enjoy this. Uh, I'm not sure when Stony Brook was, but uh, I was playing with the, the Fort Wayne Philharmonic. I was subbing up there and Akira switched to playing left-handed. And, and I can't remember uh, why exactly he did that, but he's still, after all these years, playing left-handed. And nice. yeah, uh, I think it was, well, maybe he'll chime in and let us and remind me exactly why he did that. But um, well, I, I once uh, had really injured my right hand badly and I had to play a few concerts left hand. It can be done. That, that's always a funny thing with Winton. You know, Winton, who has finger dexterity, like, uh, you know, from another planet in addition to everything else. And then, you know, you'll be working with him and, and, and you know, he's playing. And then someone comes up and asks for an autograph and he signs it and he's left. <laughs> so <laughs> it's always like people are like, oh, okay. <laughs> but you know, that reminds me, uh, these are some techniques that I had learned from some other teachers, but I, I call them distractionary techniques. Like, you know, if you have a difficult passage that you're working on is to change things up and play it left-handed or to play it standing on one foot, mm -hmm. right? So that you're, you're distracting one side of your brain. Do you, Have you ever uh, engaged any kind of teaching tool like that? It's something similar. I, I like to take away visual. In other words, I, I don't like the idea of playing with the eyes closed, but I like to get in a room with no light or um, it, like it's like we have these five senses and if we take one sense away, the others get sharper. And if we take our sight away, I think our ears get sharper. Now, uh, I'm not saying that that's something I can scientifically, uh, you know, quantify. But uh, I know when I know when I can play an etude by memory and play it without looking at anything, I'm hearing it in a more intense way than when I'm reading the page. Having said that, you know, it's very important to be able to look at music and, you know, play well while you're looking at music, too, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm still working on that side of things. <laughs> Yeah, Akira mentioned uh, some of your books, and I think one of the things that I appreciated, and I, I don't remember which order I got them in, but endurance drills, uh, but or one of those that scales. I mean, it was just a, a new way to think about scales, and you know, it made it, it made it enjoyable again, and you know, I appreciated that. It's like Scott Belk's flexibility books, right? Which uh, yeah. you know, I I think he's very happy that uh, <laughs> that you had said something about those books. But, you know, it's something new and it, it doesn't cheapen the, the technique, right? It, it enhances us. It gives us just one more tool to get the job done. Yeah. And, and, and fundamentals is where it's at. I mean, you know, the, the, the longer you play, the, the more important they are. I mean, it's just like, yeah, you, I, there's a quote in my slow practice, because there's some quotes in the back and it's one by Michael Jordan. He's talking about basketball. But he, he just is talking about you know, the, the minute you get away from fundamentals, man, this is not a good move, you know. And I've always been a big eavesdropper and, and listening to, you know, Phil Smith, listening to uh, Alan Dean, listening to Mark Gould, listening to Ray Mace practice. I could give you stories of them 
working basics to a, a level that that is beyond description and and they're they're playing these basics and and they're they're reaching for like an internal uh kind of intuitive understanding um which is just uh it's magical to watch you know well but but you must have already had something very much like that in place or you wouldn't have been at that level uh, that you were at as early as you were well you know these books you mentioned and they're published by charles Cohen, but i i wrote, wrote them for my you know i i rarely had pri uh, regular private lessons ever you know that teacher i had in high school emerson had it was great great inspiration he was like an uncle to me you know he had been solo cornet in the, the great Michigan band of the Rebelli, and I still never ever, ever heard a trumpet player play like the Belstead solos the way Emerson had could. And, uh, but I would write a lot of my own exercises out even back then. I mean, the stuff that's in the books is like the tip of the iceberg. So, I, and I would, I'd also been an athlete. So, you know, I, I on a basketball court, I would say to myself, yeah, I need to be able to move to my left, and I would with a dribbling, and I would make up exercises and drills for myself. So same on the trumpet, I would say to myself, if I play a really high, loud, high note, and can I immediately then play a soft, low note? If I tongue very loud and low register, can I immediately tongue penis on the high register? So I would write all these drills out. I would create a scenario and then write an exercise or an etude about that scenario. And uh, the first book that was published was uh, Articulation Studies. Mm. And, and I had just been carrying around a stack of these exercises for my students. It was actually Mark Gould who, you know, he'd seen, you know, someone had shown up in him and he called up Dr. Charles Colin and Alan and Liz over there. They had a, their store on 53rd street and he said, you know, you guys should print this. And so Alan called me up and I brought him in and, uh, and I didn't put him in. He, I wrote a little forward to it where I related the one minute drill that I learned from my teacher at Eastman, Sidney Muir, who had been a student of Herbert O'Clark's and, and he had told me this drill from Herbert O'Clark. And so uh, that's how that book came about. It was, but it was my, at the time I wasn't thinking, oh, I've got a book. It, my thought, well, you know, gee, I just don't have to go to Kinko's anymore. You know, someone else is going to make the copies from me. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's where they come from. Uh, um, and I, and just this past December, they came out with another one called Focal Point Exercises, which I'm very excited about. I, I find it to be a very uh, helpful and significant uh, kind of protocol. See, I, I don't need to know that. I don't need to know that there's yet another book available out there. And, and my wife might be watching this uh, interview right now, and she, she'll probably agree. Um, <laughs> You know, it, it's funny. Uh, I, I just went to thinking about, you know, all the books that we amass uh, over our career. And, you know, my students right now, I ask them to go buy something. I, I'm going to throw my students under the bus right now. And they're like, oh, I don't have the money. Can you just give me a copy? And I'm like, if you knew, yeah, and, and we have the ability to digital download books, right? Yeah. Q Press, I think, is is one of the my favorite sites lately. But do you remember, you know, the teacher would say, I want you to get this book and you'd have to call the local music store and they'd place an order and it might be two, three, four weeks, right? Before the book would come in yeah. if they didn't have it in stock. And I remember, uh, you know, it's, you did what you had to do to get a hold of the book. And I'm thinking, well, it's kind of like with recordings, right? I mean, everything's at your fingertips literally now, but uh, yeah, I, I kind of wish that uh, your students still had to work as hard as we did 
to to build that collection of books and and uh, LPs, right? Albums. I hear you, and I agree. I, I'll say the same thing. They've got other things that we did we didn't have to worry about. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe it balances out. Well, uh, you know, yeah, uh, you're thinking about. I'm thinking about uh, going to the listening library, right? I mean, you. This was. I don't remember if it was a card catalog, but I mean, do you remember doing this where you'd get an assignment and and I, the first thing I ever remember was actually uh, the. Uh, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on this. Um, oh, man, I can't edit this is live too. Uh, he recorded all the cornet solos, and then he was a conductor of the Seattle. Uh, sent, thank you, thank you, thank you. Right, with, you know. So that was. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, that that was the first uh, thing that I ever checked out uh, at a college music library. And oh, my gosh, my eyes were opened. George uh, Schwartz was my last teacher and I was already working professionally, but yeah. uh, my, my biggest influence and, and my the I still learn. He, I in the summer is the normal summer. I, I'm at the Eastern Music Festival where he's a music director. I still learn so much from him. And he was a most inspiring musician I've ever been around in not only trumpet, but in, in every way. Well, it's not fair to get that, that good on trumpet and then just leave and, and go do something else. <laughs> well, he's, uh, Jerry is like no one has ever been, you know, it's just, uh, I could, we could spend the whole show on him. Yeah. Yeah. It's just yeah. Uh, like, uh, uh, someone from another world really. I, I want to go back to something you said very early on, and you were talking about uh, that first orchestra orchestra job out in Kansas, and you said, you know, I wasn't quite ready for that. Can you can you explain a little bit what you meant by you weren't ready for that? It was the it was the uh, uh, it, it was a heavy workload. I mean, we were we worked a lot and we toured and often on buses and it was playing a lot. I remember one year. We did Schubert Ninth. I don't know how many times. It could have been thirty or forty times, and and it was that. It was a grind. At the same time, there were great musicians there, and I, and the people I met, very inspiring. You know, one of the trumpet players was Dick Smith, who was you know in the later stages of his career certainly, but he had been the he had been principal trumpet in Cleveland before Adelstein, and and Dick was a, a, a George L had picked him. To be to primarily play, you know, the Beethoven, Brahms, Schumann, Wagner, Richard Strauss, and I think it was in, in he he joined the orchestra in the late '50s, and he served as principal for uh, just a, a some years, you know, and and then Edelstein was brought in, and and I think the repertoire got a lot wider then. Mm -hmm. But Dick brought something so special. If you, I mean, he's the principal trumpet on their Schumann Symphony Cycle with Zell, and that's one of the greatest examples of that sort of early romantic how a trumpet functions in an orchestra. The warmth he played almost everything on B flat, mm -hmm. and uh, the warmth and the Bruckner Third they did is Dick playing for principal on a rotary B flat, and it might be the first rotary trumpet. Uh, performance with a major orchestra in, in American orchestras. And I think Bruno Walter doing Bruckner Ninth with the Columbia Orchestra, which was a, both a New York and an LA orchestra, but he, Bruno Walter recorded the Columbia with, uh, uh, out in LA, also late 59, 60 or something like that. But, um, and those were rotaries I've been told. But uh, anyway, so, you know, when I say I wasn't ready, 
uh, it's no reflection on on anyone there in the job. I, I was young. I was the youngest person in the orchestra. And, uh, and again, everyone was very nice to me, but it was just, uh, I just wasn't ready for that kind of job where you go to the same seat day in and day out. And uh, I've always liked, you know, even when I was in Kansas City, I started playing, like, I was, you know, I've been playing jazz since I was little and, and I was working in a local jazz scene and, and uh, there's some great jazz musicians in Kansas City. And uh, I just, I don't know, I, uh, it's, it's a hard, I can't really say what I meant. But I, I needed sort of to play more different things, I guess. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and I guess it can be a grind too, unless you're unless you're a you know a New York Phil where you're doing maybe two or three different programs a week, right? Well, you've got, you got some that variety. Is, that is a uh, that is a heavy workload too, and until you've done that, you know, and and trumpet players have to understand the difference between the different sizes of the orchestra, like playing principal in a 75 piece orchestra is so different than playing principal in a 104 piece orchestra. And it's almost like a boxer being a light heavyweight versus a heavyweight. And when I, I would, uh, I felt like, I mean, I always felt good in the near Philharmonic and, and they were very friendly to me and, and very nice, but I always felt like if I was going to be in there all the time, which I never was going to be, I would have to make certain, uh, I would have to make certain, uh, adjustments uh because uh like at eastern in the summer i'm principal trumpet of that orchestra which is mm -hmm. 70 piece and we play you know we finished two summers ago we finished with alpine symphony and played big Mahler six we played a lot of big stuff but it's different playing Mahler six or alpine in a 75 piece orchestra versus 104 piece orchestra and until you've sat in that chair uh you don't really no, it, it can't really be described. Uh, it's just different. I can tell you that. And it's not a question of just one's louder than the other. It's, it's different. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I think about some of the regional orchestras that I play with, you know, we don't even come close. We might get close to 70, 75 mm -hmm. musicians, but you know, most of the time, probably in the, in the fifties or sixties. Right. And so it's, it's, uh, it's a challenge not to, well, and, but we don't do a lot of big Mahler pieces in those orchestras, mainly because it's just we're not together enough and, to and really bring that together. A very large body of work I did in New York was with St. Luke's and Orpheus, where you're was much more common to be in the 35, 40, even 20 piece, you know, doing Pulcinella, Haydn symphonies, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, just just things like that. And and I always loved that because it was very healthy. I mean, you can just play sort of, you know, um, yeah. There's a, it's like, like playing in the New York Philharmonic is a little like grand opera. You know, you have to sort of project yourself in a different sort of perspective. Uh, when you're playing a small group, it's like you're singing a, a, a Schubert leader to a small audience. You know, you can sort of enunciate and speak sort of in, more intimately. Armando Gattala used to talk about this, uh, playing the trumpet conversationally, like like speaking, like you and I right now, versus if you're speaking to a large body of people, you have to enunciate slower, you have to project yourself in a certain way. There's a real skill to that. And, uh, um, and sometimes the players that are used to that have a hard time with speaking at a normal tone of voice. Yeah, so, and trumpet being such a physical instrument, I think more than any other instrument has that dichotomy you know it's like, like trumpet players have different metabolic 
levels of comfort. Uh, it's like a track athlete, that a uh, hundred meter uh, sprinter will not be able to race 800 meters and a 5,000 meter middle distance runner will not be able to race the 400 meters. They're just now, you know, th these are great athletes who can run any distance faster than the vast majority of, of the population. But at that level of say, the Olympic level, it's very particular. You're pretty much good at one event and trumpet players, uh, you know, a, a great trumpet player can play most everything on the trumpet better than most. But as you rise up in the echelon of performing groups, it gets very particular. So you'll have a phenomenal player who sort of only plays second, you know, or, uh, you know, you, you'll have to see examples of that. Well, not just positions, but, you know, even like, like principal or second or, or whatever, but, you know, thinking there's no other instrument in the orchestra, right? We play B flat, C, D, E flat, piccolo, uh, flugelhorn, cornet, uh, and of course, uh, and rotary. And of course, now these days, uh, you know, the natural trumpets are starting to creep in to more and more of the orchestras. I mean, there's no other musicians really uh, in the orchestra that have to be that good on so many different instruments. I mean, they're all trumpet. I get it, right? <laughs> they're all going to argue. You're still just blowing through the little end, you know. Yeah. But well, what what I mean, no instrument is is the hardest. They're all hard in different ways. We don't have any of the technical considerations that any of the woodwinds have. The uh, nothing close. We don't have any of the the fingering dexterity uh, that strings have and or woodwinds. We don't have the uh, the insecure partial system that the French horns deal with. The trombone has to move a bigger distance between notes than any other instrument. We, you know, a valve going down uh, three quarters of an inch versus someone moving their slide eight inches a foot even. But there's one thing that trumpet is is by far the most strenuous instrument. Uh, and and these these are things that have been tested in laboratories. In fact, the second most strenuous instrument is the oboe, actually more than the other brass instruments. So trumpet is the only instrument where people can physically damage themselves in a traumatic sense. In other words, hernias are not rare. There are other injuries that, that can happen that are trauma injuries. Now, oboes have a slight history of that. Now and then you'll run into an oboe with a neck hernia. Once you're past that, almost every injury is an overuse injury, which mm -hmm. is serious. I mean, they're very serious and very, very uh, uh, problematical, but they're not traumatic. It's not a tissue ripping. Uh, right. It's not a, a nerve getting severed. So we're like the sprinters of a track team, like where the hamstring can, can, can sprain, Achilles tendon can be ripped versus a middle or long distance runner where it's just overuse, you know, eventually you can get uh, tendonitis or things like that. Well, and so even more reason to convince young students to really develop a good routine. And, and I, I try to explain that routine doesn't mean doing exactly the same thing every day, but you take care of all the, the things you need to take care of on a daily basis. But how important that is to not just jump in and that you're really focused with with it. So you don't end up, you know, injuring yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Very wise. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and that you sound good, right? I mean, that's really the goal is not to not get hurt. It's to sound good yeah. on a consistent basis. Right. And, and you have to often uh, do so when you're not feeling well, you know, <laughs> I, I have one funny studio story. I've told it a few times. I, I, I had a, a rec 
you know, back in those days, we had, those days we had beepers, you know, and you get a, <laughs> and I got a call, a thing to go in, and it was a movie called Primary Colors. I think it starred John Travolta eventually, mm -hmm. and it, and it was a, it was a book by someone anonymous, but it was ostensibly about uh, the uh, governor when, when President Clinton was running for governor of Arkansas. So it was a, a book. I never read it, but I've heard it. That's the story. But anyway, I, I remember that week, I, I really had a banged up lip. I mean, I was just really hurting. You know, I was playing the trumpet was difficult and I was just trying to get through every day. It passed quickly, but that day was rough. And I remember I showed up early to the session because I wanted to get there and get the lowest trumpet part. <laughs> and uh, I remember I was there alone in the studio and looking through the and, and I got a call from the booth, like a contractor was in there with, you know, and the, with the engineer and said, Chris, can you come in here? Usually when they do that, it means they have something special for you to play. You know? So I, I, I think I said, oh, no, and I, I walk in there and, and he says, you know, today we're going to be recording a bunch of brass band music. But what we need everyone to do is sound like they can barely play. We want it to sound very rustic. Like that. And, you know, and, and he's saying, I know this is a lot to ask, but we're actually asking you to sort of sound bad. And he says, can, you think you're going to be hand, able to handle this? I was like, yeah, I can, I can handle it. <laughs> and, and I remember, and that's what we did. And I, I remember walking out that day saying to myself, you know, uh, something is going to fall and hit me in the head because I just got away with something. So, you know, the, the karma is so much, uh, I, I have to pay this back. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, on a similar note, uh, Hal Leonard does their recording for concert band and, and uh, marching band and jazz band here in Indianapolis. Uh -huh. And uh, I get to be in on a lot of the sessions, but those marching band sessions, you know, it's like, okay, let's, let's record. And you're like, well, should we make it sound like, you know, the, the, the bands are going to make it sound when, uh, when they play it, you know, we don't want to play it too good. Right. right. But right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I always thought of the Jamie Ersel, uh, you know, when I was a student, we all practiced with those Jamie, back then they were LPs, you know, and then you'd go out and play a club date or something. And, you know, you practice and it would be like Mickey Roker on drums and, and, uh, you know, Harold Mayburn on piano would be like this world cast rhythm section you'd practice with and then you go. Yeah, it was, it was funny. Uh, another comment over here, Ryan Nottingham. Ryan is a trumpet player friend of mine uh, down in Louisville, Kentucky. And his question, how do you help students uncover their events? And he's got that in quotation marks. Uh, you must have said something about events uh, earlier on. I don't recall. Ryan, if you're still there, what do you mean by that? We'll keep going uh, while he while he fills that in. But um, so, what's a, what's a typical day look like for you right now? You're teaching, you're performing, you're doing everything still, right? But maybe virtually. Yeah. Well, typical nowadays. Yeah. I have a I have a heavy teaching load right now. I mean, it's it's actually quite heavy. I'm busy with other things like. I, uh, this week, particularly, I have a committee I'm chairing that's very active, observing things. I'm, I've got to write in the next few days. Got to write a pretty long report. Um, I uh, performing. Uh, it's more like you know, uh, kind of quasi recording for virtual presentations. Uh, uh, a few weeks ago, the an orchestra I play with here in in Washington D.C. was putting out a chamber live stream concert and. They had asked me to do two pieces, which on the was on the most recent 
CD, solo CD did, which was called Moonmarked. One of the pieces called Acquainted with a Night by a young composer named Alistair Coleman and, and sort of trumpet and piano. And then the other piece was Moonmarked by Carson Kumon, a composer from Boston for a clarinet and trumpet, which I recorded with my wife, Suzanne. And this was to be uh, filmed and recorded for, uh, and you know, with the, Nowadays, with the indoor mask mandates here in Maryland, uh, you have, you must keep a mask on indoors in a public space. And I was in the you know there was a big TV crew there and, and recording people. It was, a, it was a really well produced event. But I had to, we had to keep our masks on right till when we played. And I was in the building a good hour ahead of time. And then it's okay. Okay, now Chris, it's your time to record the piece for piano and and uh, no real chance to warm up at all and. Mm-hmm. It's everything, and it's basically live. There's almost no opportunity to edit. I mean, they could do a tiny, tiny bit if you really needed to, but basic. But it, it came out uh, phenomenally well, and um, uh, and so I felt very fortunate about that. But but it was just that's a different experience, you know. That, and we all in this in this pandemic, we all have our various tales to tell in this way, and that that was a, a very unique unique. Kind of experience uh, doing that sort of rec- recording, which is going to be seen by very, very many people, and and absolutely playing it pretty cold. You know, uh, now a piece I've done a lot and recorded and, and felt very comfortable playing. I had a phenomenal pianist to play with, not the pianist I recorded with, but another one, Elizabeth Hill, who was she was fantastic. And then Moonmark for clarinet trumpet, which is a good you know six and a half minute piece, nonstop. Uh, uh, but be- a beautiful piece in a lot of ways. And Suzanne and I had done that a lot. So that went very well. And Suzanne had the same pressures on her to, to not, to have the mask off until the downbeat, basically. So uh, I'm not, I'm getting away from your question. I, I, you know, I, I'm busy. Yeah. We all are, but yeah, I'm, as we all are eagerly hoping that, that there will be live concerts again. Yeah. Um, Ryan chimed back in down here. He says, reference, referencing the conversation uh, was talking about specialties within the profession. It seemed that there were comparisons drawn between specialists in athletic events and specialists in the upper echelons of music performance. How do you help students discover their specialties? Oh, that's a great question. And, uh, and I also not sure I was all that clear in what I was uh, um, expressing. I think that, I think actually students, I know I felt this way, you should try to do uh, as much as you can different. And, and actually your, your, your niche will probably be chosen by the people that are asking you what to do. You know, I, I hate to say that, but uh, um, very few of us end up doing what we might've intended to when we were young, but you practice, you work hard and things evolve where you're more, comfortable in one situation than another and then you get to be uh you know uh needed in that in that regard so i would actually uh respectfully maybe advise uh not tell a student what they should be doing i mean they should do everything not everything everything but just try to get as good as you can get and and let it get sorted out i mean play everything as as, I, I remember when I was in Eastman and a young, I would never say no to anything. I mean, play everything, and and 
and it'll get sorted out. If you, if you, I mean, it's a tough business. There's always going to be more people uh, who, who are out there than there are jobs. But that's true in every profession. And, and there are professions where it's worse than music, believe it or not. So I can't but, imagine what that would be. But. <laughs> the, um, but if you are a really good player, you people will eventually want to hear you. You know, so I, I've taught for so many years now and, and if I, I could fill a book up with names of students that have gone on to very successful careers and in very widely diverse uh, areas of music. And, um, you know, someone who's a, a phenomenal jazz improviser and, and very active in that, I'll remember, uh, you know, us working on Brandt etudes and, uh, um, you know, and it, it, someone who's dedicated to orchestral playing. Well, I, I'm going to want to know that they can play third trumpet in a bassy chart and, you know, not hold the group back, you know. Um, so I, I don't like the idea of someone being sort of a jack of all trades, but I think, you know, I, I it would be sad if someone at a young age decided, well, this is all I'm going to do, you know. Um, that's hard for me to put in words, I guess. Yeah, I, I remember being, uh, well, not young, but younger, and somebody would call. I was doing a lot of uh, weddings and receptions, mm -hmm. and uh, the only thing I ever said no to because I knew I simply couldn't pull it off was uh, they wanted a country band, mm -hmm. right? I mean, there, there's no way I could do that. But I remember the first call I got was, can you put together a jazz combo? Yeah, you bet. You know, I didn't have a combo, you know, so <laughs> I put one together as quick as I could, but uh, being able to to know your limits, right? I knew that I couldn't do country. And if they had asked for R&B or, you know, something like that, I would have said no. But uh, I think I like what you said, you know, get them to try uh, a little bit of everything, right? Maybe, you know, we can all hopefully at this level, right? We can all perform, we can go in and, and play, um, classical a little bit of uh we can swing when we need to swing but that might not be our forte is that is that where you make your your bread and, and butter that's bad is that where you make your your money you know well, playing playing bebop or going right I, and i know the answer is probably no right i mean i played i played a lot of jazz and i've recorded with you know wayne shorter and pharaoh sanders and, and a lot of people and i've I think correctly involved, but I, but you know, yeah. I mean, when you hear Winton burn Cherokee down at quarter minute equals three fifty. No, that's that's another area, and and I think you know, uh, but still, I I want to keep my mind open to everything. You know, I I I think I don't. Know, it's maybe it's just language we're using. Uh, I mean. So I, I would, I encourage people to, to get out there and play, including, I mean, I've done, I've toured with Dolly Parton and, and uh, Kenny, uh, Kenny Rogers. And, uh, you know, uh, of course that's a kind of a commercial, you're playing a sure. chart, you know, it's not the same as putting together a country band, but right. it's, uh, I, I wouldn't want to close the door on anything myself, yeah. you know. 
Well, you know, I went through the drum corps ranks years ago, and uh, for a long time, I would tell students, don't do drum corps. But, you know, so much has even changed there that now you can get a pretty good pedagogical experience, right? I mean, everything. Well, and now they're on three valve B flat instruments, too. So yeah, that makes and you see someone like Chris Martin. Who's, right. <laughs> yeah, pretty amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, you got to spend an awful lot of money to spend a summer with, uh, well, and his brother, Mike, I think works with uh, Cavaliers, you know. So, yeah, if you can get uh, that kind of experience with those guys, sure. Um, so, I, you also don't want to spread yourself thin and get physically worn out. It, this, is, this is a great question that, that you fielded there, and I have, like, no answer to tell you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, Way to go, Ryan. <laughs> There isn't an answer. I mean, I think we, everyone yeah. has to live their life and, and do what they can and try not to get hurt. And uh, yeah. 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 Well, um, you're teaching where right now? University of Maryland. That's when I left New York, it was in 1998 because I was offered the professorship here. And one thing I realized, uh, uh, you know, young kids at home and, and uh, I, in New York, you don't really have professors of instrument. I mean, there's so many players. So all the faculty at these schools are basically adjuncts. You know, you're paid per lesson. And I know that some people have sort of special deals made up, but um, I didn't really understand what a, being a professor meant. And uh, and when it was like explained to me, and I, I looked really into it, it, it seemed like a, a a a great opportunity. And I've had others like that and, and others since then, but I've been very grateful to Maryland. Maryland is, a, and I'm also not that far from uh, New York and I've done work, uh, run up there and done, you know, recordings with, with people and, and uh, um, so, uh, but yeah, I'm in University of Maryland, which is a, a great university and we have a very good school of music. It's a small school of music. It's actually smaller than many conservatories. And I've had a, a, a number of really phenomenal students come out of there. Um, you know, uh, this has been great. I can't believe an hour has already uh, flown by here. But, uh, uh, you know, for everybody that that uh, checked in and listened and asked some questions, Ryan, Akira, thank you guys uh, for, for checking in. Um, Chris, hang on just a second. I'm going to wrap things up here. And uh, once I go off the air, we'll, we'll finish up. But uh, thanks to everybody out there for checking in tonight. And uh, uh, listening to Chris. And uh, just a reminder that James Thompson's interview uh, came out this morning on the podcast platform, also on the Studio HFL YouTube channel. Next week, episode 99 with Bria Sconberg comes out. Uh, the week after that, uh, episode 100 with Wayne Bergeron. And that is also the week that Rex Richardson is live with me. So uh, some other great events coming up later this month. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for being here tonight. I really appreciate it. Nice to meet you. Thank you. And, uh, you know, uh, look forward to having a cup of coffee or, or another beverage with you at some point, <laughs> in the, hopefully in the near future. So, yeah. all right, everybody, uh, have a great night. Uh, again, appreciate you for being here and stay healthy. Yes.